1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So welcome to Rector's Cupboard. The date as we record this is April 4th, 2020. Most people or a lot of people have lost track of the date. We had to look it up here to just to say it. And uh, we're pleased to be recording another episode and to welcome Jeff and Susan McSwain uh, in conversation. But before we, uh, uh, we play the, the recorded conversation with Jeff and Susan, um, we're gathered here, well, we're gathered in various places with a few people who've uh, helped out and hosted with Rector's Cupboard. We have Ken Bell, our regular cupboard master. Hello. Hello, good morning, Ken. Good morning. We're not tasting anything today. We are not, we're unfortunately. Not you can taste whatever you happen to have in your house, but don't share what it is. We're not visiting a distillery today because they're only making hand sanitizer anyway. All the local That's distilleries. Right. Do you know there's a new one in Northland that I hadn't heard about called Stealth? Did you know about that? I read about it oh. last night. Yeah, I was like, how come How come we don't know about this? Now we do. I wanted to sample their products, but their products right now consist of hand sanitizer. So, uh, and Amanda Mina, morning, Amanda. Good morning. Amanda is one of the people who's still working, right? Oh, and I am grateful for that, yes. You're working yeah. from home. You're grateful for it for the most part. For the most part, yeah. How are I, your, how's your schedule? Um, somewhat chaotic. Um, but also somewhat slow, uh, which is a difficult thing to explain, but um, a lot of Zoom time, a lot of just trying to stay connected with people in a different way. Yeah, I saw, I saw this little video. I mean, there must be a thousand things like this uh, the other day on the news or some comedy show where uh, a youngish guy was going to work, right? So he had like a suit coat on and stuff and he was saying goodbye to his wife and he's like, and he grabbed his coffee. I'm like, I'm heading off. He's like, I'm heading off to work, honey. So have a great day. And he just like opened this little door to one room. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's where he's working, right? But that's people who have a room like that. Like there's lots of people who don't, right? In urban settings or whatever, where it's a relatively small space. Allison Williams is joining us as well. She's in a blanket fort. That I am. I've heard it improves sound quality. Also, it helps me hide from my children. So that's, that's beneficial in these times. It seems the opposite, like using a blanket for to hide from your children. Okay, my daughter did tell me when I was putting this together, if I needed help, that she could help me because she's really good at making them. <laughs> well, it's good. It's... Uh... Yeah, uh, blanket forts, anything, all these tips we're learning about sound. Thanks to producer Rick for telling us about the blanket forts. And thanks to our listeners for putting up with sound that is not as good as uh, as producer Rick would usually uh, get us set up with. So uh, so we're going to talk about some COVID stuff, but not in hopefully not in a way that's like, you know, wow, it sure is crazy these days, hey? Like, I, you know, it's true, but... Hopefully we're moving past that conversation as well to ask the questions of not just like how are we 
you know, how terrible this is, but how are we going to live in the, in the midst of this? Because it looks like it's going to set in for some time here. So starting off with, with the idea, I'm sure you saw or you heard about, and we won't play clips or get into Donald Trump's press briefings because they are, I mean, they're going to be for the ages, right? They'll put compilations of this together for teaching future leaders how to lead well and how to run a press briefing. He seems to be impressed because he talks about his ratings and stuff, which apparently his ratings are a lot lower than just like the nightly news. Like fewer people are watching the press briefings than are watching like newscasts, right? Um, he I, also I, said I he was. Yeah, he also said he was number one on Facebook in one of the press briefings. This is this is the kind of thing to take time telling reporters and such that you're number one on Facebook, which apparently was also not true. Um, he has like. 28 million followers or something, and Obama has 50-some million followers. Um, Again, I wouldn't tell him that. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. It's But one of the things that I'm sure that you saw or heard is that in the press briefing a couple of days ago, he I guess he's trying to find, like, the silver lining or something to the COVID crisis. And he said, uh, he said gas prices are super, super low right now. They're going to be below a dollar a gallon which is quite, that's really cheap, right? Here it's, it was 94 cents a liter yesterday when I saw it in, in Canada. But so that's 20 years probably since it's been that, something like that. In, in the United States, below a dollar a gallon is, is something. But tr Trump used it to say that's basically a massive tax cut for people. Nope, not, not actually the same thing. Well, it's, it's I mean, really not. People are paying a lot less for gas. They're also not using gas because they're staying at home. So gas costs. Well, so that's that's a double bonus then. You're saving a lot of money that way. It you're not driving anywhere, so you're saving money there. And if you do have to, it's really cheap to sell. So he's not he's not wrong that the cost of driving your vehicle has gone down uh, during this time. Yeah. But you can't go anywhere. But I suppose. <laughs> And also, a lot of people aren't working, so, you know, no paycheck to pay for the cheap gas. It's incredible. It's incredible, too. I, one of the quotes I like to use all the time is a Kurt Vonnegut quote. He's brilliant, like, satirist, writer, comedic writer, all this kind of stuff. Died, I don't know, getting it wrong, a couple few years ago. Um but I remember in a book I read of his once, he said, became fairly well-known, this little saying, that uh, he was talking about how he doesn't really believe in God, but but that when he dies and he's before God, it's a great play, good writing, um, he's going to ask one question first, and that was, hey, God, what was the good news and what was the bad news? That, uh, you know, saying we, we can't get it down here right now. And certainly none of us would say that pandemic is is good news. It's entirely bad news. But what I'd like to kind of speak about in this little time that we have together has to do with the future. How are we going to look at things in the future? How will the time we're in now impact the way in which we see the world, the way in which we view relationships, the way in which we view work, uh, maybe climate? Uh, some people have spoken about the impact on climate and the ability of people to mobilize when, when something is agreed upon as important. And so we'll talk about that. We've got a couple of articles that, that we've mentioned. We'll put them in the episode notes. One is on grief that was uh, in the Harvard Business Review. I think, Amanda, you sent that to us, right? Yeah. You yeah, were, 
I found it. Okay, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not you producing that from when you read the Harvard, Harvard <laughs> Business Review. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was a rather lengthy piece in the New York Times yesterday. I think it was yesterday, April 3rd, um, on mother-daughter relationships. A young Chinese-American named Yang Yang Cheng, who's a particle physicist in the United States, was writing about her mom in China and how her mom uh, is a committed Christian and a committed member of the Chinese Communist Party and how they see the world so differently and yet how they're trying to connect at this time of COVID. And it has something to say about, um, it's very well written, it has something to say about um, the impact in the future in terms of relationships. So, But I thought we'd start with thinking about future and theology, because after all, we're talking about hopeful theology, in playing a couple of little clips from a CNN news story. So fake news, fake news, but a CNN news story on um, churches that are still meeting. So Ken, you mentioned that there were a number of states where there's exemptions for religious gatherings in terms of not being able to do them, right? Yeah, it, at least 14 states have declared that churches are an essential service and therefore they're exempt from the limited gatherings of what. 200 people or 50 people or 10 people, it doesn't matter. Churches are allowed to meet because they're an essential service. But they're told that they're supposed to practice social distancing, right? Uh, that's what they are told. And from the video clip that we saw, uh, people are going in and hugging one another and stuff like that. So clearly the social distancing thing is happening. Right. And, and uh, it would be, I guess, like a grocery store then that, it's an, it's an essential service. So like grocery stores can be open. These yep. places can be open, but they're supposed to follow the guidelines. Now, I'm not hugging anyone at the grocery store right now. <laughs> well, yeah, in this CNN thing, I don't know that we'll play that part of the clip. Maybe we will. They actually s mentioned people hugging each other and have video of people walking in and out of the church embracing well, each other. Play, play the piece because I have two thoughts on it, but I want people to hear it first. All right, you ready? Yep. So this starts off, Gary Tuckman, one of the CNN reporters, is in the parking lot as a number of parishioners come out, they're in their cars, one person per car, so at least that's something, at least as he interviews these people, and they are explaining to him why they think it's okay to keep meeting. There's a reference to the 91st Psalm in here, which is interesting. We could talk about that interpretation, but here we go. Lot is a woman who just attended a church service with dozens of other people, including children. about your decision to go to church to be inside that building? I wouldn't be anywhere else. Aren't you concerned you could infect other people if you get sick inside? No. People that don't cover this. No. Church. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. I'm covered in Jesus' well, blood. There are other people who don't go to this church who you might encounter. All of these people go to this church. No, but you're going to be in places where other people I go are. to the grocery store every day. I'm in Walmart, Home Depot, all of those but you people. you could get them sick from what happens. They the could church. get me sick, but they're not because I'm covered in his blood. Thank you very much. Ninety minutes earlier, we watched as people arrived at this evangelical congregation, the Solid Rock Church in Cincinnati. This couple about to walk in with a toddler and a baby. And then there is this woman and man arriving. The woman hugs the man. That same man hugs a woman They're just inside. showing people embracing the, the front woman hugs a man inside. And then she hugs a woman. Church leaders would not talk to us on camera, but have posted this statement, which implicitly refers to the pandemic, and adds, for that reason, we believe that the doors of Solid Rock Church should remain open. The church says it practices social distancing inside. 
but the pastors would not allow us in. So we have no way of confirming that. Either way, it doesn't address the potential dangers of large gatherings. Yes. What if one person is here's the parking lot again. building together? It's a large I gathering. Absolutely not concerned. The blood of Jesus cures every disease. Psalms 91, read it. It's, you can get somebody else sick if you get sick inside. Well, what if you got it? You can get me sick. What if you get others sick though who don't go to this church? We have there's not one person sick. How do you know? Because I know I'm the pastor. But how do you know? Because I would hear about it if somebody was sick. Well, you could be asymptomatic. You better not print no fake news about me, or you'll hear from me. There you go. Uh, I will say what we're not playing here is after that they, they he interviews a a man who's a little bit more uh, nuanced. He says, "Yeah, I understand that this could be difficult and stuff," but he also says uh, the reason we're doing this is values, like American values and freedom and liberty, um, and so we have the right to to keep meeting. They noted um, Tuckman spoke with Anderson Cooper after this, like in a, you know they come out after the story and um tuckman mentioned that there were a number of people who he had contact with from the church who were really against them gathering at all and so he was trying to say you know there's there's more to it than just like a big mass of people who are all kind of thinking the same thing so ken you mentioned two points that you were yeah i mean watching this i, I see two things coming up you have the people who have a theology uh based in this idea that because they are Christians, they will be uh, exempt from any disease. The, the Psalm 91 reference is about, you know, no pestilence will come uh, your way and stuff like that. So they have this, it's the prosperity gospel that if you just have enough faith, uh, then you will be healed of everything. And therefore, I'm assuming no one in their church has cancer. No one in their church ever gets a cold. No one in their church has any sort of genetic diseases or anything like that because you just have to have enough faith. And that's that's just really poor uh, theology. Um, but the other one, and this was the man we didn't hear from, talks about the idea of liberty, which is very much uh, rooted in the American ethos. We have the freedom to do whatever we want. The government gets to put very limited uh, fences around what my freedom is. Uh, you know, live free or die uh, isn't just a motto for one state. It's, it's in a lot of ways a motto for the entire country. And so for them, it's an issue of, of liberty. I can meet with, with, with whom I want, wherever I want, with how many people I want. Thank you for the advice, but, but it's you can't to, tell me what to do. It's interesting to me, and Amanda Allison will get you to chime in, that I, I agree with what you're saying. The concept of liberty is something that they've had kind of drilled into them as like, don't let you know, people tell you what to do. But clearly, there's a mass of people here who are greatly affected by whatever the pastor or pastors are saying. The 91st Psalm does say um, that though this pest, a pestilence comes in the 91st Psalm, there's reference to it. It's metaphor, though. <laughs> it's poetry. But anyway, it seems that what this minister has done, I can't say for sure because I don't attend that church, but is use the 91st Psalm, take those verses that say, though a pestilence or a plague comes and strikes people down all around you, you won't fall. I'll protect you. So the idea that somebody has stood up in a pulpit and said that in reference to this particular pandemic, to these people who then go out from that place and go to grocery stores and go to other places is in incredibly, incredibly troubling. Um, well, and I've got a larger question for theology in future, but Allison and Amanda, we haven't let you chime in. Well, 
it it's irresponsible. I can only imagine how how clips like that must feel to people that are in New York right now that have been quarantined or that have seen like it is not an abnormal story right now that you're seeing things pop up where you have three, four, five members of a family all dying from this or complications from this. And so to see people who who are so obnoxiously, I'll say that, sure, obnoxiously like flouting medical advice. But they think they think they're exercising faith. That is not how I understand faith. Right. I just want to be very clear on that. Right, but they do, right? They think my pastor has told me this. I am going to go out and live in faith with what my pastor has told me. This is why what I'm saying is, and we are no longer like, you know, regularly part of the church that we were part of. And not, it wasn't like this, by the way. And they have stopped services, the church that we used to be part of. But the, the idea is that like, if the minister says something in so many places, then acting upon that thing is a demonstration of your belief. This is seen as a value. So what I'm getting to is that a lot of what the United States is facing, a good degree of it, is because of pulpits, because there are people who have led to a distrust of science to whatever else it is. And, but the people going out themselves don't think they're doing a bad thing. They don't think they're being obnoxious. They think they're being faithful. There was, there was another report, uh, I think, on CNN that said one-third of the cases in California uh, route back to church services. Church services. Amanda? A third of them. One of the things that I find alarming back to the pulpit is that pastor saying, I know. The reporter asked him, you know, do you think you're doing the right thing? How do you know that people aren't infected? Well, I know. Because I'm the pastor. Because I'm the pastor. Yeah, I think that's remarkable and alarming. Um, There's this perception, perhaps, or I don't know, real power that has been given to those in a pulpit. Um, Yeah. And so they can say whatever they want. He thinks thinks he's better than testing. Yeah. He He should be unleashed upon. He could just tell everybody, well, I know I'm the pastor, right? Now, I guess he's saying... I know because I know my people and I know, but clearly we know that people can have it or asymptomatic and the rest. And, but I guess, you know, to get to what Allison's saying, that the confusion between ignorance and virtue or ignorance and faith, ignorance is not faith. And a terrible interpretation of Psalm 91 means yeah. a few things. Number one, I don't know who that pastor is, but if this is how he's interpreting Psalm 91, then there's some educational difficulty there. There's some ignorance in terms of learning scripture itself, how you speak it to people. But this is, I would imagine that this is not unlike a lot of places, particularly in the United States, but other places that are, my problem with it is it's mishandling of Christian scripture. So it's not that it's not for me to be against the church, which I'm obviously not against the church, but I'm against the church being ridiculously ignorant theologically and then that having terrible consequences for members of the church and for other people. It's a crazy, crazy thing. It's not, you know, so, and then, and then to hear people claim persecution, you know, after this, that you're just laughing at us or whatever. It's like, no, I'm doing a lot worse than laughing at you. I'm saying you're ignorant and people are dying because of your ignorance. I mean, it seems like it's, it seems like it's, hard for for people to to comprehend 
even in the face of what seems to me like very clear, overwhelming evidence. Um, but there, there's part where I, I don't know where they're getting information from. I mean, the pastor. Yeah, and where he's getting information or she's getting yeah. information from. Well, probably he. <laughs> probably, but not not exclusively. No, no, there's like Paula White, right? Had her. There's okay, an religious. Thing. Yeah. Religious um, ignorance like that is not exclusive to a particular gender. It just seems overwhelmingly in one direction. Well, we'll, we'll continue to, Ken, yeah, Ken, go ahead and then we'll... Well, I was just going to say, I mean, this for me was, I mean, this was interesting. It was a bit uh, of a, to me, it was a bit of a sidebar uh, thing. The, the article I found more interesting, and maybe we can talk about it, is the one on um, grief, the one from the Harvard yeah. Business Review and stuff no, like that. And the, the sixth level of grief uh, being that of trying to find meaning in the midst of in the midst of grief and whether or not people uh, and, and naming the idea that what a lot of people are feeling right now uh, is grief and just articulating the fact that, yeah, I am feeling grief, grief over um, the anticipatory grief in the future, uh, what's going to happen, but also the grief of maybe losing jobs. Uh, of of deaths and families and all that sort of thing, uh, and that idea of you don't just come to make peace with grief or accept it, but you want to find meaning. And I thought that so if we can take a couple minutes to talk about that, he, I found that a much Amanda, more interesting. You, you sent that article out to us, a Harvard Business Review article on grief. It was like a few days ago that you sent it out. Um, what resonated with you in it, in general? Um, there were a few things about it. I found it a bit freeing, actually, because yeah. um, I hadn't considered it in terms of grief. But as soon as I read it, I realized that's exactly what this is. So, um, so really a sense of this is what I'm feeling and somebody's naming it. Yeah, somebody finally articulated it for me. Like, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah. Um, and even at the, at the beginning of the article, um, I know what I tend to do is think, well, my situation isn't as bad as others. Um, I don't have kids at home, so it's not as hard for me. Or I'm still working when many aren't. And so um, what I often do is try to brush that off that, you know, the feelings that maybe I have, the sadness that I may have, mm. um, I try to dismiss it. And instead what the article is saying, actually sit with it for a minute. And it's right. okay that you also are sad, even if you aren't struggling with a toddler at home, or even if you are still collecting a paycheck when so many aren't, it's still difficult in the moment that I myself am in. Right. Um, and so there was something freeing in that, um, just saying, sit with it, sit with your emotions and acknowledge them um, and then move through them and find it, meaning in what's happening. It was, when I read it, I was struck by how it had emotion to it. It was moving us. I don't mean emotion, but it had a motion to it. It was moving us kind of giving some hope in terms of like, you'll, you'll come out of this and how are you going to find meaning and stuff? Allison, you liked it as well. What? I did. Um, I, it, for for me, yeah, it felt very affirming, and it it helped name what what I was experiencing. Um, like this has been in a, in many ways more disorienting disorientating for me emotionally than I'd anticipated, and mm. and this helped name like that that as that there is a collective sense of like a loss of safety. Like I've I've talked to friends, I've talked to family members that that are scared about getting this and that because of either pre-existing conditions or their age or what have you, that they're looking at the people who are dying from this and they're going, I fall into that and that scares them. And so there, I don't think we've had 
with with previous pandemics, like you look at the H1N1 or Ebola or Zika virus, like all of those things, they they weren't it it for the most part, at least in in my life, we were able to be distanced a yeah. little bit from that. It didn't feel like it was ever going to actually affect me. And now I'm thinking of of family members and friends and people in my community that if this goes and permeates as much as some epidemiologists are anticipating it might, like 40 to 70% of the population in the next year, that it is really conceivable that I have several people that die, that I know and care about that, that die from this. Right. I think you'd feel that particularly if you're in somewhere like the United States or something, it seems, Amanda, you were. Yeah. I was just thinking about the article itself as well. And the thing about grief that it talks about stages that I find frustrating is that there isn't a timeline and it's actually not linear. Yeah. Um, And that stuck out a lot in that you can move through these things. There's those motions that you talk about, but you can also end up back at the beginning. Yep. (laughs) same day or the same hour um and i hate that but i recognize it at least and again it was that articulation of this is a cycle that we're all going to work through and just continue to and move backwards and forwards um and it doesn't it really does it speaks well of that Uh, and the idea of finding meaning i just in the last couple minutes for our conversation here um not not to push away from the present that we're in and the context that we're in, but when we're talking about hope, that idea of how you know what is it what is it going to look like to find meaning in this? How are things going to change? Even constructively, I wouldn't want to say positively, but I think back to 1918. I wasn't alive then, but uh, all the stuff I've read about the pandemic. I read an article yesterday in the Telegraph from England that talked about the rebuilding of the economy after the pandemic. And it said the the general argument of the article was that the places that shut everything down for longer periods of time actually had a much better time of rebuilding the economy than the places that tried to keep things open had that spike occur and it was much more, more difficult on them economically. But that article gave me some kind of hope just in thinking to the after and when I think yeah. of the after, like I go back to that clip of the church and we get upset and angry and I get upset and angry. But the positive thing that I hope for is, can we do better than this then? Can, can theology change so that we work against some of this ignorance and help people to do that and become more aware of how people can be manipulated into, into ignorance or they can be, you know, I would argue abused in such ways. The article from the New York Times that we won't spend any time on has to do with that in terms of a mother and a daughter and trying to relate to one another. So how have you guys thought as we kind of move to close our little conversation here about how things might change after this? Well, I, I find hope that, um, that people will, will learn to um, have more compassion than, than they have before. Cause there, there is like a universal kind of leveling with this and there's part where i'm hoping that people will learn to have have more compassion for for other people whether that be with their health concerns or their mental health concerns or economic concerns that that people understand that there there is a need for caring for each other you say that in kind of a way that we're you know realizing our interconnectedness as well yeah okay Uh, and there's part where like i've i've talked more with with some family members and stuff in the last couple of weeks than I probably have in the last couple of years. 
Right. Um, and so there, there are things where I'm like, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm like, okay, I, I can seek more, more connection with people. I can reach out more. Like th- those things are doable. Right. Ken, what do you think? Um, I mean, I'm kind of torn. I think, I think certain things are going to change in the future. Like things that were on the fringe of either being successful or failing, I think this will speed that up. So if you had a business, a restaurant uh, that was barely holding on, this is probably going to end that. If you had a technology, Zoom, for example, uh, last year they averaged 10 million uh, calls a day. Right now they're up to 200 million calls a day and growing. Um, I think it's going to leap forward certain things. But there's also a part of me that says, I I don't know that... This, once this comes to an end, I wonder how, I think we're going to quickly go back to the way sure, things we'll work. revert in most ways. I, I think we will revert back in most ways. I don't think it'll be like after 9-11 where plane travel for has, has forever changed. Um, I don't know what in this is going to say this has forever changed. There might be more online meetings than there used to be, but people still need to get together because anyone knows in business meetings and stuff like that, conferences, the best conversations happen around a, a, a bar table or a dinner table. They don't happen in, in an organized conversation time. So I don't know how much will change at the end of it. Amanda. And I'm not saying that's bad or good. I'm just saying I just don't know. I think, um, I think there's a greater appreciation for connectedness that comes out of this that's already happening, right? Um, I, I think of just our gatherings as this little group of us that we've been really intentional about staying connected um, on a frequent basis. And whether that actually just be with a drink in hand in the evening to say, how was your day? Um, which I think is, is incredible. Um, or staying connected with family in ways that perhaps we haven't before. Um, I'm encouraged you know, you think about economic rebound and stuff like that. And um, just for myself working in the entertainment industry, there's already been a lot of discussion and chatter about how people are actually going to really be interested in getting together again. Oh, yeah. At the end. Right. And so yeah. in that everything is stopped and paused right now and arenas and theaters and clubs are sitting empty, they will reopen. Yes. Um, and pe- there's going to be an even greater appetite, I think, to go see something in person because as, incredible as zoom is for keeping us connected like ken said um sitting down next to someone and experiencing yeah. something in a live environment can't be beaten being at a concert um, beside somebody you don't know and, and sharing sure, glance of like you know you you love this band or whatever and i'm wondering if there'll be moments i think they will for there will be for people like me so excuse those of us who are like this that i can picture a time where i just almost like break down at something mm-hmm. just like like i'm at this you know, rock concert or something. And I just feel like, you know, cherubim seraphim, I'm going to burn up because mm-hmm. I'm so grateful to be able to be with people again. And, and I can't believe, you know, to large degree, not entirely, but to large degree, I took that for granted before. And I'm also really encouraged in the present that we're in that actually, and we're in British Columbia, Canada, but that people have responded so well to this. I mean, I go for bike rides still. I'm still allowed and don't go near anybody and all that kind of stuff. But I look around and see, you know, the quiet streets and see some people walking and stuff like this. And I think it is remarkable. It is a testament to people how actually we people have stepped up. Even people who don't feel they're at risk themselves have stepped up to say, it's worth it for me to lose things for the greater good. 
Yeah. It's an incredible positive response. Uh, Ken, sorry. Amanda, yeah, thank you. Broke- you gave us a picture of, of a hopeful kind of future. I really love it. Ken, sorry. Yeah, just real quick. I mean, by example, last night, we have a family that we typically get together with every week to have what we call a family night. So it's two families coming together. We haven't been able to do that with this. So we set up a computer, we set up a Zoom call, we, we picked a theme, it was Hawaii night, and uh, we ate dinner together. It wasn't the same, but it at least it was fun. It added some normalcy. And we're going to do it again next week. I think it's formal night. That's um, awesome. But it was just something fun but i think you're right that sense of i'm when we were talking about it i'm looking forward uh my dad just turned 90 this week we didn't get to do anything with him uh for it except for sing happy birthday through a partially open door i'm looking forward to giving him a big hug and having a birthday beer with him when all this is over amen amanda the other thing that i i mean it's it's hopeful and encouraging and i think it speaks to how we've come together at seven o'clock every night. People are going out onto their balconies and clapping and cheering for people and who are horns. It was loud last night. It was incredible last night, and I, I I feel like it was probably louder than I've heard to date. Um, all of the boats in the inlet, because um, I'm quite close yeah. to the harbor, uh, they all laid on their horns last night. And then I'm also quite close to a train track. You'd think it was very loud where I live. Um, it's not normally. Uh, the trains all laid on their horns as well. And so then people started joining in and, and there was sound everywhere. It was just this collective thing for roughly a minute and a half. And then it just stopped and everyone went back inside. But for a moment, there was such incredible connectedness. Again, um, people That's rallying around together. And that gives me so much hope. I think it's what incredible. What a great note to end our conversation on that though we can lament and we were, I mean, it was tough to start with that clip of, of people gathering at that, at that church, but that there is something that pretty much right away, people long for connectedness, like you're saying, they work for the common good, like we've been saying, and let's hope that in those positive ways as well, we can become better in the future than we were before this happened. I, I don't know, I, I, I know where Ken, what you're saying about, the 9-11 thing and how much change will there actually be. I, I've never lived in a time like this. Uh, you know, my kids who are 22 and 20, they're going to live most of their adult lives after the pandemic in, in whatever the world's going to look like that's being built then. Those are the people and, and people younger than them who are going to build the world in the years ahead. They'll build it, I do hope, in light of this. And much of that might might be positive so it's not a silver lining to this thing this thing is a pandemic and a and a plague but uh that we could that we could move towards hope so thanks so much for all you guys uh, coming and speaking when we put this up we'll probably note in the episode notes where this conversation ends and the McSwain conversation begins so that if people choose to listen to one or the other or whatever um but i'm mindful as well even as we talk we're like wanting to get together for a few minutes and chat um it's got to be a bit longer than that because uh, it, there's interesting things to talk about, but it's also something that it, we need. So thanks so much to those who are listening. Wish we could share a drink and do a tasting, but we'll do that really soon. Or maybe Ken will go out and buy stuff and then drop it off at each of our doors and we can do a tasting next time. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. See you later. We're pleased to have Jeff and Susan McSwain with us from Durham, North Carolina, or in Durham, North Carolina, from Reality Ministries. Here's some uh, biographical notes on Jeff and Susan. They are the founders of Reality Ministries in Durham, North Carolina, 
And what Reality Ministries does is fosters friendships among people of all abilities, marked by mutuality, authenticity, and the reality of Christ's love for all. Susan serves currently as the executive director, and Jeff is theologian in residence. Jeff has published various, is that right, Jeff? Yes, keep going. Okay. Jeff has published various articles and two books, uh, Movements of Grace, the Dynamic Christo Realism of Bart Bonhoeffer and the Torrances in 2010, and most recently, Simul Sanctification, Bart's Hidden Vision for Human Transformation in 2018. Uh, they're keen to stay at the interface between systematic theology and practical ministry. And in the last 10 years, Jeff and Susan have helped to plant a new church and launch the North Street Neighborhood, which is an intentional community of 17 houses now. Am I getting the number right? Mm -hmm. 17 houses. I'm just reading this from a thing. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> 17 houses near downtown Durham where people of various abilities live together. So Jeff and Susan, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having Thanks, us. Todd. Glad to be here. So first question to Susan, who it's great to meet you, Susan, great to meet even you by well. video here. I look forward to more conversations in the Absolutely. future. So tell us about Reality Ministries. Tell us what it is. Yeah. So Reality Ministries is um, just a bunch of people, adults of all different abilities, sharing life together in a lot of different ways. And we're experiencing a lot of transformation as we celebrate the dignity and wholeness and life and contribution um, of every single person. Um, and we um, are hoping to go deep in relationship, as you mm. said at the beginning, that's real, that's mutual, where we're giving and receiving in really authentic ways. So we have... So, oh, sorry, please, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, so I'm thinking you. this was founded in 2007. Did you have, were you um, involved in this kind of work before that? Do you want me to? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just talk about myself personally. Yeah. I, um, I had never had um, any, I don't have any training or education and had not had prior to 10 years ago experience um, with people with disabilities. Mm. Um, just a story about myself personally, I was invited to come to an event by a friend um, who was taking a group of people with disabilities to a, on an outing, and they needed some more volunteers, so she asked me to come along. Um, and I'll never forget, I was mm. driving up to the, to the mall where we were going to go to the movie, and I was so nervous thinking about spending time with people with disabilities. I didn't really know what to expect. And I just had this expectation that it would potentially be really awkward, mm. that it would be really hard to find things in common or to talk about. Um, so I had a lot of anxiety going into it. When I parked my car and walked up to the movie theater, it was obvious right off the bat, the group that I was looking for, <laughs> they stood out. Um, uh, physically stood out from the rest mm. of the of the crowd there and I walked up to the group with so much trepidation and was immediately greeted by a man named Hunter who's now a good friend and he just came right up to me and introduced himself and welcomed me with so much um, just natural friendliness and acceptance and even in that very moment I just suddenly experienced a sense of belonging and acceptance mm. that was really 
unusual. And I, I couldn't have described it then. I'm not sure I can even really describe it now. Mm -hmm. But I just, I felt um, a part of something just by virtue of my physical presence. Just by um, being there. Yeah. 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 And so so then we went into the movie. It was one of the Shrek movies, you know, <laughs> seven or 32, I don't know. And uh, at the end of the movie, everybody in our group, um, there was a song. It ends with a song. I need to look it up and remember what the song was. Oh, it's like that. The song. I know what you mean. I know the song. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, someone. And a dance. I don't know. And everybody in, in the group. Somebody once told me the world. Wasn't that it? Yeah. Anyway, thanks. Let me say, yeah. Whatever it was, it doesn't even matter. Uh, everybody left to their feet and started dancing in the movie theater. And it just, I, I just suddenly felt like these are my people. Like, That's where have I been all my life? Because the freedom to just be in the moment without a, a single thought of what is anybody around me going to think or uh -huh. is this appropriate or whatever. Um, and so I just, That's great. as we, as we left the movie and we're waiting for people to get picked up, we were standing in a group and all the other mall goers were walking past us and kind of staring at us, yeah. you know, because we looked different. And I had this really clear thought. Um, I'm just so glad to be part of this group mm -hmm. instead of one of the people walking by and staring. And so my life radically changed in that moment and has never been the same since. So that what, was the beginning for me. Um, what a blessing. That's such a great. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, that actually to our conversation. Sue, yeah. that actually happened even before the beginning of reality yes. history. Right? Yeah, so yeah, I didn't, yeah, want, the, I didn't want the listener to be confused when Todd said we started in 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a little bit longer than 10 years ago. Um, but that was a formative experience for Susan, but also for me in, in hearing about it. And Jeff, you're a theologian in residence for, for Reality Ministries. Tell us what that is and why it matters. Of course, somebody like me, I love that title because <laughs> um, I you think that I think that, you know, theology really matters and we all have one and, and you know, whatever th theology we're kind of projecting and sharing is going to have great yeah. impact on the value of an organization. So tell us what that means and why yeah. you like it. I'm sorry, I chuckled during the intro. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm still getting used to it myself, but it's, it is a bit of a luxury, I guess you could say. Hmm. Um, sometimes I joke about the fact that since I'm not on the payroll anymore uh, and Susan's in charge, that it's a good way for me to to let her still allow me to have an office space at the reality <laughs> center. At the, at the reality center. Um, but more than that, I think it's, uh, well, just to go back, Susan took over uh, in 2013 as executive director. And that's kind of when the reality ministries became one with the idea of building community uh, for people with and without intellectual disabilities. Before that, we had done some other different things. And Susan had been in charge of the wing related to IDD, uh, intellectual developmental mm -hmm. disabilities. Um, but in 2013, that was streamlined and consolidated and we began to do more of, of what we did best in, in, in some ways. And uh, I had burned out basically mm -hmm. <laughs> after five years of trying to start Reality Ministries. I just, I didn't feel like I had any gas in the tank, but it felt like a really good transition point for Susan to take the helm and for me to really look for an intensity of a different sort. So that's when I went back to school. But having finished that and being back at Reality Ministries, um, I'm just constantly trying to remind the staff and others as much as possible that 
that Reality Ministries is not first and foremost, has nothing to do first and foremost with people with without intellectual disabilities. It's, it's not geared toward addressing the problems, even though there are many in, in society uh, in relation to first and foremost, um, bridging that gap between people who are, who are physically different or intellectually different. But really what it is, is just a constant reminder that this is a theology for every human being mm. and therefore also for people with intellectual disabilities and all of us together as we look at one another through the same lens. And that is through the lens of the creation and redemption of, of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what I remind people of. That's what I do. That's what I write about. Um, and it's a blessing to be a part of this. Susan also has asked me this year, although we're not meeting anymore, to meet uh, to lead the staff in our weekly Bible study. We've been going through the mm. Book of John this year, so that's been a good way for me. Have to you been able to do any of that online, or have you been able to do any of that leadership online? We're still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, I like everybody, right? Uh, so. Um, you, you reference, uh, Jeff, kind of burning out before 2013 and some of the things that happened before then, just really briefly. Um, so those who are listening know I met Jeff through, first I read uh, one of Jeff's books, the Simul Sanctification book. And when I read that, it was for me uh, one of those things that you can read where you're like, this is what I felt or what I've known or what also I've hoped for uh, much more, I think, fulsome and scriptural and hopeful description of sanctification than some of the models that I had seen in my evangelical experience. Um, and not long after that, I was attending an, an academic conference at Princeton and Jeff was there as a presenter and a participant. And Jeff was kind enough to meet with me for breakfast. And Jeff, I told you, um, or you, you told me some of your story, your life and faith and ministry and vocation. And what I realized was that there were some similar contours to what I was experiencing at the time, actually. That was last June, June 2019. And in July 2019, myself and a whole kind of level of staff, basically the whole staff, um, were gone from a church that I had been part of for uh, 25 years more, working there as, as associate minister and then senior minister. And so our stories had some similar contours when I found out about them. So maybe before I ask you some theological questions, if you can just tell us a little bit about your story, how you wound up at Reality Ministries to begin with from what you were doing before. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I did appreciate very much you sharing your story, Todd, with me. And uh, I'm sorry that you guys have been through all that. Uh, no, it, it's, uh, it's been difficult. And it was difficult for us, the transition to reality ministries. Um, I, I'm getting old now, so when you say, tell my story, I, I don't know how far back to go. You know, like, well, I was born in a log cabin. But uh, I think the best way to summarize it would be to say, uh, I grew up in Young Life, which is an evangelical organization that's directed toward reaching teenagers with the gospel, and a beautiful organization. Uh, my mom and dad knew the founder of Young Life and had grown up in Young Life themselves. I remember when dad introduced me to Jim Rayburn, who had been his mentor and such a formative influence for him. Uh, I was seven years old, and I felt like he said, this is the president of Young Life. And I, I still remember it felt like a surreal moment. I said, the president of Young Life? I mean, this is the biggest presidency that you could possibly have. This is better than any nation or anything else. Uh, 
And, um, but what dad learned from Rayburn and what mom and dad learned from Rayburn uh, as they passed it on to me growing up was simply everything that I believe now about the gospel and that I articulate and try to write about in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, they were practicing all these years what, what I have been teaching now. Uh, young life didn't particularly, uh, well, didn't approve of the, the, the different theological angle that I began to give to what I thought was most consistent with the practice. Right. Uh, I, guess, I guess you could say I was hoping that, that young life would see that in Scripture there's a good pathway to, to actually preach what we practice in young life, which is such a beautiful, <laughs> such a beautiful way of, of reaching um, out to those who, who, uh, who are hurting and, and who are looking for the Savior. Um, so, so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What what do you see? What what is the or what's are some of the major theological differences that you saw there? As you say that, I'm thinking of um, we've had this. I think you actually uh, heard the episode and then talked to David Goa and uh, on our, on our I, podcast. Yeah, with him on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah and, and David has this saying that he took from his father that most people are better than their theology. I I came across it actually uh, recently. I read um, Camus' book, The Plague. I just read it because of this COVID thing that's going on. Camus wrote this book in 1947, and there's a priest in the book. It's a small Algerian town where the plague comes, and they have to lock down, and people are dying, and all the things that are going on. But there's this priest who gives a sermon that is basically like, uh, you know, God sending this plague and various things. And 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 the uh, the doctor in the town says, uh, you know, people ask him, "Are you upset by this priest?" And the doctor says. Uh, well, he's he's better than what he says, which is the same thing. Saying most people are better than their theology, yeah. and so yeah. with all that in mind, I was wondering what what are the key theological differences, or if there's one yeah. between yeah. kind of what you just outlined there. Yeah, you know, I've I've been asked that that question before. I, I've kind of broken it down, um, but I'll just say that by before I forget that by standing on these scriptures that I'm getting ready to share um, in, in 2000, uh, that, that really started happening for me, which I didn't really do justice to your question about my story. Uh, in January of 2000, we were at a Young Life staff conference, and there's a lot of irony in this because it, a bunch of Young Life staff people, men and women, got on a bus and went to a satellite site for a Fuller class. I was doing a master's at Fuller at the time. Hmm. And um, I just decided I'm going to take a systematic theology course. I honestly didn't know what systematic theology was. And I, I just thought, well, I'm getting ready to speak at Frontier Ranch this summer. I, I want to be on my A game for the questions and answers seminar. This sounds like a, a really good thing to do. And I was absolutely mesmerized by the teacher's ability to connect. I thought, I thought theology kind of started with Calvin and Luther. You know, I didn't realize there was like 1,500 years before that. And he was connecting scripture and uh, back to the patristics, the early church fathers, three guys like Bart and T.F. Torrance. Hmm. And I was just blown away. And I said to him, Gary Dedo, who's a wonderful man, I said to Gary, where can I go to get more of this? Yeah. And he goes, well, I, I said, I have to take a break from ministry. This is rocking my world. Where can I go to get more of this? And I really literally had an epiphany on the beach where I looked around walking down at Daytona Beach during the satellite site course, uh, Fuller Extension course, 
And I had seen everyone in a whole different light yeah. in that moment. I saw every single person as a brother or sister in, in, of mine because of what Jesus Amen. Christ had done. Amen. And so rocking my world the way it did, Gary said, well, there's one place you could go if you really want the, the most intense teaching in that regard, and that's St. Andrews. He said, Alan Torrance is there, and Trevor Hart's oh. there, and Richard Balcom is there. And little did I know, but when I got there, Jeremy Begbie had arrived from Cambridge. Oh, I didn't know that. So I took the Holy wow. Spirit from Jeremy Begbie. Oh, uh, And um, I took uh, Christology with Alan Torrance and uh, Tr Trevor on theology, politics, and the arts. And um, it, was, it was a beautiful year for our family. We yeah. all moved over. I just couldn't, I couldn't go on until I had taken the deep dive. So was well, your... Your yeah. um, disconnection with Young Life was because of the the theolo theological thing that was kind of brewing in your mind, and that didn't. Uh, it wasn't a them. right. Well, it wasn't a disconnection at first because I was actually given a study leave to go over for the year and stayed on okay. Young Life staff just with, with benefits and that kind of thing. I didn't have a salary, but I right. was able to kind of stay in, on the radar. And then when I came back, I resumed my Young Life staff duties, but. Uh, by that time, I had become so impassioned. Susan, Susan used to laugh. We would go. Um, you remember this, honey? We would. We had our weekly date uh, to go to a different cafe or a different restaurant in St. Andrews for lunch every week, and we, and we would literally we were gonna we were gonna pick off each one throughout the course of the year. And Susan laughs about it because it was supposed to be a date between the two of us. And I would sit down and say, "You're not gonna believe what Mark says about this." <laughs> And I would read, I would read to her. For we the first we part. share she some experiences. <laughs> she, would, she would tolerate, tolerate it for a while, you know. Yeah. We, had, we had some good times. But I really came back with more of a fire in my belly after taking a year to kind of, to recalibrate and read the Bible with a whole new frame. So um, that's when I began to run into some, some issues with Young Life in regards to the way Young Life proclaims the gospel. I always have felt practice was just absolutely Christ-like and Christ-centered. Um, but the things, that, like the five things that really, and, and these things, I, I won't go into all this because I'm, I'm kind of tired of talking too much about the Young Life piece, but on my website, jeffmcswain.org, there's a tab Thank called, you. this is the gospel that has, and that was one of the papers that I wrote during the time, but a lot of the theological discussions are, are found within the pages of those white papers that I did back in the day. But, um, but the five things, okay. I would say for the typical evangelical mindset, people do not start out as a child of God. Mm. People do not start off um, forgiven. People do not start off reconciled to God. People do not start out justified or redeemed. Well, those are five mm. to name a few. And I began to read, for instance, um, you know, John 1.14 in a completely, or John 1.12 in a completely different light, the way Peterson uh, renders it in the message. But um, the idea of being a child of God is something that's true about us before we believe it. It doesn't become true when we believe it. But we've been children of God uh, from all eternity, according to Ephesians 1. And yeah. so that's my new definition at that time of what a child of God is. And then the idea of being forgiven and reconciled to God is all there in 2 Corinthians 5. God uh, was not counting our trespasses against us, reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Um, and that's why, that's why, because we are reconciled, we should be reconciled. Because we are children of God, we should live and believe in the truth 
of who Jesus Christ is and who he's made us to be. And then, of course, you've got Romans 3, 23 and 24. Amen. Which I, I, I just cringe every time somebody separates that sentence. Yes, thank you. And, stop, and stops, you know, right at the end yeah. of Romans 3, 23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All they read when is they the setup. Are, yeah, they don't read yeah. the truth that's being, yeah. <laughs> yes, and the all, the all is on both sides of the comma. It's, that's right. It's right there. You know, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and all have been justified freely yeah. by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. So there's, you got justification and redemption. So keeping those two together, uh, those are, those are just five, I guess you could say examples of the difference and, and to boil it all down. And Susan and I use this for people a lot. It, if you boil it down in one, in just one real short, succinct way of saying it, it would be, uh, you belong, therefore mm. believe instead of, you know, if you believe, then you, you might, yeah. then you can belong. Uh, so, so well put. Thanks so much. I, I, and then for me, with your your work on Simul, which, because of course the the inspiring thing, the encouraging thing about this all with Romans twenty three or three twenty three and twenty four, um, but to then move that conversation to one of sanctification, which this is why your book really helped me because I'd been experiencing some of the similar things that you're talking about having these things opened up through BART and, and others. But that sanctification piece for me became important as well. Not simply kind of how do we belong and that we belong already, but what about the concept of growth or discipleship or some of these things that again, in our experience, we had communicated to us in certain ways. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by simul? And of course, I guess what Luther slash BART, whatever mean by simul and how that introduces a, different concept than many of our listeners might be used to in terms of discipleship and progress in spirituality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sanctification is, is, a, is one I didn't mention. Um, and that was the topic of the most recent book, but, but it brings to mind the fact that a lot of times we do separate justification and sanctification. Mm. It's almost like, well, let's just forget all about justification and let's start over with sanctification forgetting that justification really means we're home before we start. That's what sanctification, that's, that's the whole, the premise of sanctification is we're home before we start. And that gives us some real oomph, I think, in, in terms of uh, the truth and reality and the fullness of the Holy Spirit to lift us up and to live in the truth of who we, belong, uh, of who we are in Christ. And that's why he's called the or she is called the spirit of, of truth. Mm. Uh, but similar sanctification is uh, essentially an allusion to uh, Luther's phrase, simul ustus et peccator, uh, which is simultaneously righteous and sinner. And this is a teaching of Luther's for Christians. And what Bart has done is recalibrate that and, and to really, based on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in assuming our fallen and depraved humanity, uh, and then sanctifying it as he went through his own earthly journey uh, of, of life and death and resurrection and ascension, that, um, that really it pertains to, to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in the fact that it's just as sure uh, as, as justification is. Our sanctification is just our, as sure. Our sanctification is just as sure, but it's a matter of then looking to Jesus who took on flesh and really, I, I guess the best way to, uh, the best way to describe it is when we think about sanctification, a lot of times we have a tendency to think that 
well, that's for us. That Jesus and the Father, you know, they're they're already pure and holy, and we're supposed to be sanctified to be more like Jesus. But then we read in in John where uh, John seventeen where Jesus says that He is being sanctified for our sakes, and we're not used to thinking about Jesus being sanctified. Uh, we're not used to thinking about the humanity of Jesus Christ in the way that we do. And so because of who Jesus Christ is as the righteous one uh, and as God and as the true human, and also as the, uh, as the one who took on fallen, corrupt human flesh, mm-hmm. he is in a sense, similar et peccatore in himself. Now that doesn't mean that. He's so sin- this righteous sinner himself, right? It means that he is fully righteous and Barton Luther even talk about uh, Christ being the greatest sinner of all, mm-hmm. but that ne- that needs unpacking because it doesn't mean that Christ sinned, but it does mean that he represented the fallen condition of mm-hmm. every sinner and that he put himself in solidarity with us. And he actually um, felt all that we feel in our human brokenness and the, and the, even all the way down to this deep sense that God has abandoned us, that we have, and that Jesus actually plumbed the depths of that. And I think that the Savior would never ask us, and this is a keynote for sanctification for me, the Savior would never ask us to go through something that he himself had not already gone through. Uh, And so what we can know is that we are sharing Christ's sufferings as we're tempted in every way, just as he, he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Mm-hmm. That those temptations are coming from within, from the flesh, as those synapses of the flesh are firing off and mm-hmm. beckoning him to go into the to disobedience, just like they do for us. And that because at every crossroads, he was able to turn right instead of to go with the flesh to the left, so to speak. At every fork and every crossroads of our experience, we can also, by the Spirit, follow in his footsteps. And that's what gives us the potential uh, not to continually be victim of evil and wickedness and of the flesh and gives us hopefulness of walking with Jesus in the path that he himself walked as a human being. It's it's interesting because I, I think of like being a, we could all relate stories of being, you know, a Christian teenager or something and, and thinking about our own growth, right. And the challenges that might be presented to us or the, and somehow getting onto this kind of wheel of like, am I doing well enough or am I achieving enough? Or am I? So the simple stuff uh, helps me. And I think others, as we speak about it more and more to more people yeah, to yeah. see that, as you're saying, not only our justification, but our sanctification is in Christ. It is something that is sure. I don't have to, you know, make it happen. I do get to participate in it. And so I'm thinking of this. And and then I, I think of Bart, when I started to read in Bart that like, that Jesus is both the elect and the rejected. This back to righteous sinner and stuff that, and that in him, we are all elect now. Like, as you say about that Daytona beach experience, looking out and saying, these, this, these people are all, there's no dividing line here. There's just, it doesn't exist that. And so I was, as I was reading through some of your stuff and actually I, have a ton of quotes from your book. You quote Bart a lot in that book, obviously, because you're building from his theology. <laughs> and uh, you you give us this this wonderful picture that is a counter to me to some of those images that I think were well-meaning, and I'm grateful for those people, and I'm grateful for the track that I was put on. But the images of progress are like 
gradualism, like step by step, you know, uh, and, and instead Bart uses language, language like that we are thrown, that we are launched, that we are caught up, that we discover, that these are all sanctification words, participating in Christ. Um, how for you are those words better, whether it's in your own experience or your own theological understanding? Yeah. Well, I think it starts with what I was saying about the fact that we often perceive Jesus and God being on the other side of the table. And we think from us, or maybe in the other court, like uh, some are on the other side of the net or whatever, and we see them doing something for us, and then they throw the ball to our court. And <laughs> it, feel, it feels heavy. It feels heavy because Christ has done all this for us, and now it's up to you to respond. And it's like they threw the ball in my court, but for me, it, it might as well be a medicine ball about yeah. those proportions. You know? I, I can't get it back. I mean, I'm, I'm not able. Yeah. I don't have yeah. and I'm on my own. any lift there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on my own. And so here I am. I'm a sinner. I'm a, you know, I'm a rotten sinner on this side, and Christ has done this for me and thrown me the ball. Now I'm supposed to respond. There's not any lift in that. There's not any... There's not any buoyancy of spirit. And so as I think about this in the fully Trinitarian way that Jesus Christ is able to be one with the Father on his side, but also one with me as a human being on our side. And so that then that covenant between God and humanity is kept from both sides by Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And there's real lift in that because I'm I'm inside of it. That's where participation really starts rocking because I'm inside of it already. Whereas the other way he throws us the ball and we have to right. respond is, is what we call metaphor. cooperation. Yeah. And, and cooperation is a lot heavier. Participation is, is free. It's all about the spirit yeah. because we're already in Christ responding to the father by the spirit. So it, it's not a matter of a gap that's there. It's more a matter of this is the truth about you. Let's stay under the, yeah. Oh, your videos, your your audio is cutting out. Now, you're saying something absolutely. What does really the say about um? <laughs> where was it? Uh, you were saying something brilliant. I remember that. What does Colossians say? Is your video? Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, I was just talking about how Colossians says what well, it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you, you teach one, admonish one another and, mm-hmm. and talks about singing and praise and thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. As we do that, as a group of people who are all desiring to live into this reality, live into this truth of Jesus Christ, as we put ourselves under the word, it catapults us forward. It's, it's like the Bart likes to use the word quickened. It's yes. like the spirit, it doesn't make anything true that wasn't already true, but we're quickened in the truth. Uh, I think a different metaphor is for that, but it's like... Um, like if you're in a roller coaster and you're in the same roller coaster in the back of the roller coaster uh, of the train as you are in the front of the train, but you you it's like when you go over the, if you're in the back and you go over the hump of the roller coaster it slings you forward it's like it's it's like it it just like I said catapults you or it it launches you forward as you and that to me is what it means to to grow up into Christ our head he is our head. We are in him, but we still grow up into that. So we become the person, instead of becoming a person that we're not, we're actually becoming a person who we are. One of the other quotes that you mentioned from Bart, I've got it right here. 
Uh, and what I want to do is I just want to read this, and then I'm going to ask you a, about kind of three accusations before um, we talk to Susan a bit more about reality ministries. But uh, some of what you're describing is put really well by Bart, again quoted in your book, when Bart says, a person is measured by what God has done for him. I mean, using uh, the pronouns from back when Bart was writing, but a person is measured by what God has done for them, not what they are doing, you know, for, and that's that's the kind of thing that just, I think for me, the, the, the challenge, I love the, the metaphor of, you know, the ball on your side of the court and feeling that you're kind of on your own, or that in some ways worse, that you, Jesus then becomes kind of means to an end, that you enlist Jesus for your particular cause of spiritual growth or something, instead of living in the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for all. But a few accusations that uh, I've heard leveled at Bart or at the kind of theology that you're speaking about, one is this concept of righteous sinner. You get quickly uh, back sometimes from people that well, we're told that we're a new creation, that the old is gone, the new has come. So that's one. The second is that Bart would, you know, was accused sometimes of being soft on sin, and you speak uh, well against that in your book. So you got to, um, and then the third basically being, well, if everybody's in, if this is all, then why would we be interested in spiritual growth or evangelism or these kinds of things. So how do you, you can take one of them or all of them or whatever you think, how do you kind of, those are, I would imagine general things that are thrown your way as well. And do you do anything about those? Do you, I mean, sometimes I think it's better just to just ignore it and carry on. If, <laughs> if the truth is the truth, then why are we trying to answer these things all the time? But at the same time for people we love and people we care about, can honestly be feeling these things and kind of feel a sense of like, well, I better not listen to Jeff and Susan or Todd because it's dangerous, right? And these are usually the things they mean. How do you respond to those types of things? Right. I'll start with the last one because I, can, I think it was the last one. I, I don't know yeah, if I can. I can list them again if I remember yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the idea that, that we, maybe this was the first thing you said about being measured by what God has done for us. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus Christ has died for each one of us. Uh, that means there's some serious problems. <laughs> um, that means our situation is pretty bad. Uh, we're measured by, by the cross in that sense, um, that he has truly plumbed to the depths of the human condition. Um, I'm, I'm not really able to measure that on my own. Like as I look down in myself, my self-analysis, and uh, it's what theologians call psychologism which is this kind of vain belief that mm -hmm. one can assess the, the, the depths of one's own sinfulness. And I just can't do that. I mean, I, I basically have two choices. I can either kind of minimize my sin at that point and just kind of hope that grace wins and, you know, try to spin the things that I know are deep down in me and maybe some others I don't even want to look into and just try to put a good face on it and try to spin it and, and just say, well, we're all sinners, and you know, I don't really want to look too closely at maybe what some of those problems are. Or the other thing we can do is maximize. Yeah, uh, think that. about it all the time. And, and mm -hmm. instead of just hoping that that um, grace wins, if we maximize it, at first it sounds daunting. Like, why would I ever want to do that? Well, it's only because of the fact that grace is stronger and deeper than sin that we mm -hmm. can even take a look at the depths of our own sinfulness. And thankfully, we don't see the complete depths at any point. 
until I feel like we're getting we're given the biggest picture of who God is at the cross and the sweet by and by. And only then will we not be crushed by that. But I think if we have that mentality that grace is so good and that where sin increases, grace, grace increases all the more, yeah. it's always an asymmetrical relation, then we're going to be better able to confess to one another and be more transparent and vulnerable with each other. I mean, I, I think I'd speak for all of us that we are able to share with other people more when we feel like we're in a safe place, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not going to share with somebody if I think that they're going to take advantage of what I'm sharing or going to uh, judge me uh, in a way that is unchristlike. So but what about this, yeah, what about this concept of, of um, righteous sinner it, when someone who might see that and they may think, well, I was told that, you know, new creation means the old is gone, the new has come and that. So how, how do you kind of square those? Yeah, well, I think that it starts out with this idea that what Bart's telling us with the symbol, the way he appropriates it is and, and to segue from what I just said, that we are 100% righteous because of who Jesus Christ is and who we are in him. We really are holy and pure without mm-hmm. remission, free from accusation. So that's, that's the one thing. Um, but then we're also, we're also uh, 100% mm-hmm. wicked. And that doesn't compute in a normal zero-sum game because a zero-sum game means that the two pieces have to equal 100%, which means that maybe I'm 60% righteous right. and 40% wicked or maybe the other way around. Right. And to say, to say that we're 100% righteous and 100% wicked at the same time is counterintuitive because typically those two things uh, don't, don't sound irrational. But in a, in a way, though, it's a much better way to approach our sanctification process yeah. Because it doesn't make light of grace, and it doesn't make light of sin. Mm. And if we put those two together, I don't need to limit my own sinfulness. I can let it be 100%, but the cross delimits it for me. Mm-hmm. So I know, the only thing I need to know is that those two 100% are asymmetrical, and that the resurrection proves that. That allows me to have the fullest assurance and confidence and also to think about what it means that the old is gone and the new is coming. Right? Amen. So quickly, so quickly, I'll just say, since you asked about that, Second Corinthians five seventeen piece. Um, basically, the old is gone, the new has come. Sounds sequential, doesn't it? Like old and new, those are kind of like sequential words. But if we think those are sequential, then we're if we think those are purely sequential theologically in the way we experience them here then what that means is that I'm no longer a sinner. I am righteous because I've given my life to Christ or whatever. And the sequence is not meant to be about what we experience here. It's meant to be what Jesus Christ has done. And therefore, the sequence provides the interpretation to the simultaneous. In Christ, I am new. Yeah. So that's why Bart says, I was and still am the old man. I am and will be the new man. Amen. But notice that he puts the present tense. He puts the present tense in both. I was and still am the old man. I am and will be the new man. And you know what, Todd, the thing that really has hit me recently, people really grasp this much better when they recognize that old simply means false and new means truth. Because we can much more take uh, on more 
That's idea. great. True and false can exist in one space. We don't have that problem with sequential. But old and new, we have a hard time because they sound so sequential. Yeah. But if we make old synonymous with false and new synonymous with new, everything starts to make How up. fantastic I mean, is that? True. What I said, new, <laughs> new synonymous with true. Yeah, no, you, you nailed it. Thank you so much. So I, I want to go to Reality Ministries for a little bit, speaking with Susan. I, I was using, I mean, I've got, you guys, have, have you read this? I'm putting up a video thing that this is Swinton's book, Becoming Friends of Time. Um, if you haven't read this, Susan, and you have time, it is so, 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 so fantastic. Um, and Swinton's writing about um, disability and people who've suffered, like, uh, injury that leads to cognitive decline or impairment. And he does such a nice job. I just want to read to you a couple quotes from it, because it, as I looked into the kind of work that you're doing and the life that you're living, um, much of what I knew Swinton had said resonated for me, even though I'm just meeting you today. Yeah. So one is on healing. The first one on healing is, he says, healing is possible even if cure is not. The idea of healing that we see from prosperity gospel and such lays such a burden mm -hmm. in, in terms of some of the people that you're living and working with. It, it doesn't make sense in some regards for that. Uh, so healing is possible even if cure is not. Healing, finding a place in the world where one is comfortable with who one is and what one is in the world for takes time, a long time. So in your work or life, how, Susan, has your understanding of healing developed uh, with living with people in reality ministries? Well, healing is a pretty controversial subject mm. in the disabilities community. People have a lot of different um, perspectives about it. Um, what does it mean? to be fearfully and wonderfully made by God yeah. and to be born with a developmental disability. Um, and I don't know the answers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but you gave us a picture of healing with the, with the song. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. Um, every person who comes through the door is whole Amen. because of their creation and redemption in Jesus. And we know that that's true of every single person. Um, that's what we're banking on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not uh, lacking. Yeah. Right. Healing, healing has occurred, <laughs> yeah. and we are being healed by yes. one another and through one another all day, every day, and that's yeah. a really beautiful thing. <laughs> as the theologian in residence. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, as the theologian in residence, I can interject that, that – uh, Wholeness, really, the, the way Susan's talking about it, starting with wholeness, uh, means, like we were saying before, wholeness really comes before healing. And I think a lot of times if we take the perspective uh, that we yeah. start broken and then hopefully someday we can get whole, it's kind of like the view of sanctification, that we start incomplete and lacking, and then someday maybe we can get sanctified. But if you, if you flip it around because of what Jesus Christ has done, he says, you know, the scriptures tell us that, uh, Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in, in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. So when I think about healing, I start with the wholeness, and then the, any healing that might happen is just pointing to the wholeness. And like, you know, obviously when Jesus was walking around, he didn't, uh, he healed people, which shows that there was some degree of problem there. Um, he didn't just say, you're great just the way you are and all that. But at the same time, the point is that he's pointing the, the point is that he's witnessing to the 
to the eschaton and the wholeness yeah. that, we will, that we will see and when it's fully revealed. So I think that if we think of healing then as a pointer, we won't, won't put too much emphasis on it and, um, and therefore have a tendency to get tripped up on it. I was, well, I can't remember, I was reading recently that, that, you know, the miracles, which of course become fewer and fewer. We're, we're, we're just before Palm Sunday here moving into Holy Week and, uh, and that Christ's miracles become fewer and fewer as he moves towards the cross. And that the emphasis is that they're always pointing towards, as you would say, the eschaton to Christ himself rather than to that, you know, actual miracle or the supernatural or the, um, and I, I, I don't know why I was thinking of this, the, you guys, I'm sure, have come across this, Henry Nowens. Uh, I think it's in in the name of Jesus. I know on a podcast, Susan, I was listening to you referred to the book Adam, which is beautiful as well. And but in the, I think it's the book in the name of Jesus where he's talking about going to the large community and becoming, you know, on staff there and meeting people. And he had been he had all these degrees and was all the, and he talks about meeting people who didn't care at all about about all these letters behind his name and he i think refers to it as he was confronted with his unadorned self to just be present and then to receive for him the wholeness you know back the other way as well that Mm -hmm. the things that normally impress people about him didn't impress these people but that allowed him to be open to the wholeness that was already there. I was thinking of, of, I listened to a podcast, Susan, that you were on, Jeff and Susan were on together called um, Road to Now Theology um, that people can look up if, if they like. We'll put links on our episode notes as well, including to um, your website and such. But you said there about reality ministries that we are not in ministry to anyone. We are being ministry to we are being ministered to, and we are in ministry with. And I thought that was just so wonderful. Um, Swinton has a note about that kind of thing when he talks about the priesthood of all believers, the idea that, you know, in church you find your spiritual gift or something and then sign up for this thing. Or sign, And for people who are dealing with different levels of ability, that becomes something that is really, it's, it's different than that. It's better than that. So in terms of this, we're not in ministry to, can you give us some examples of being ministered to yourself? by the community of reality ministries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This thing that Jeff's been talking about, um, I mean, the whole theology of, of what's been accomplished in Christ and what we're participating in, as opposed to what we make happen by some kind of cognitive ascent to a dogma or doctrine or whatever, um, I think is just, is just also representative of, of the whole way our society functions, where we assign worth to people based on what they do. Mm. Um, or lack of value because of what they can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 we're important or valuable or worthy because of what we contribute um, to the economy or or mm. to society in the sense of um, the ways that people exchange things that they consider to be of value, what they accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the beautiful discovery that we're making within this community is that, um, that our being and our, our brokenness and our wholeness, which are the things that we share most in common, <laughs> that make us brothers and sisters, that we are all of those things. Um, there's just such beautiful community within the freedom of knowing what's true of me is what's true of you and that we're participating together in the triune God of love Mm -hmm. and and his life, their life. Um, And 
so it's just so fun and I don't understand why I get to have this experience <laughs> to be in community with people who the world has literally rejected. I mean, people right. with disabilities are a completely marginalized population because you don't see them. You right. know, we, they, they, they've been, you know, pushed to the sidelines in a way that they're not part of our life. So the gift of reality is creating opportunities for people of all abilities to get to know each other and get to be friends. And you don't have to be here long to realize, you know, you may have come in as a volunteer thinking you're going to minister to right. who has a need, you know, and yeah. I'm the strong person helping the weak yeah. person. I'm the person with helping the person without. But the experience is just so utterly different than that. So I'll give an example yeah. um, of my friend Emily. And she's a woman in her 50s who was in a car accident when she was 17 and suffered traumatic brain injury. So now she lives with a mental impairment. Her voice mm. is very quiet and very slow um, she uses a wheelchair she needs assistance to do most of, of everything that that she does physically in her day-to-day -day life and she is also um, one of the most wise women of faith I've ever had the privilege of encountering in my life she answers her phone Praise the Lord. <laughs> That's how she answers the bell when you call. And, uh, and she has this presence of such peace, even though she herself has suffered so much, or maybe because she herself has suffered, right. who knows? She brings this calming presence into our midst and um, in our in our frenzied, you know, anxious way of living life in this day and time her voice is constantly saying to us it's gonna be all mm. right and that is truth that she's speaking into our midst so she actually a few weeks ago moved away to Atlanta uh. from Durham. and um, her last day here at reality our whole staff spontaneously gathered around her as she was leaving to pray with her because we couldn't bear yeah. that she's leaving us. And we wept. We all wept as we said goodbye because she has changed us. Not because she's, you know, I hate it when people talk about disabilities, you know, like special, precious you know, innocent yeah. angels from heaven yeah. and their halos yeah, are kind of right. friendly, friendly condescension. Think, and, like, or you yeah. can get it in your, you can get it in your work, right? That, oh, that's so great that you do that. Yes. Yeah. yes. And I just think, oh, if you could just see like, yeah. our hearts, you know, are, are wrenched because this dear sister who has changed our lives by the depth of her connection to Jesus, like it's just so real. And so there's no, I am not being trite or cliche when I say Emily has ministered to me yeah. incalculably more than I could ever imagine. Amen. Amen. So you miss her. You miss her. How, how long ago <laughs> um, did she move? It's just been um, three weeks. Yeah. Okay. So right in the midst of all of this stuff. Yeah. 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 You, well, Swinton talks about some of the things you mentioned that, in terms of vocation, so he, he highlights that, you know, there's something so much better than 
than kind of inclusion or tolerance, right. that there is this understanding of vocation one to another, and that you're talking about the vocation of, he uses words like that we learn about slowness and gentleness yeah. and dependence yeah. and vulnerability and non-competitiveness and trustfulness and restfulness, which of course we could all learn. And what Emily has given to you, really, really meaningful for us um, to, to hear that. And so I just wanted to ask you as we're kind of moving to close, what, what are some of your hopes? Oh, first I wanted to ask how did, in the other podcast I listened to, you mentioned that you were going to have to tell your community there that the talent show was being canceled because yeah. of the current restrictions. And I got the sense that you hadn't done that yet, but right. now you likely have. How did that go? Just, just as we imagined, yeah. it's just a heartbreak. It's, it's, yeah. it's such a coming together, such an offering of life to our wider community, such a, an adventure, this project of creating these acts of so much <laughs> fun and uh, beauty, it's, it's heartbreaking, but also our community leads us in, um, in acceptance and moving forward and yeah. uh, waiting to see what comes next. I like so, what you're saying. You just said yeah. our community leads us in uh -oh. that. I, have you guys heard of Joy Ministries? Maybe not. So Joy is. Ministries, I don't know how, how many cities it's in, but here in Vancouver, there's a... Um, there's a church called Joy Ministries that works with, again, and they say, you know, D different abilities but if you go to that church we volunteered there a couple of times and if you go there it's i don't know it's a couple hundred people it's a, it's a it's a good sized church that has people of all kinds of various abilities disabilities whatever words you would use and it's beautiful our job was to kind of help get all the handy darts the little small buses as they came in and help you know get the wheelchairs out and wheel them into the church and, and people are meeting you as if they'd known you forever they're introducing so, and when you say that the community leads that's what i picture i picture um sharing with that community or witnessing kind of the leader saying oh sorry we have to cancel the talent show because of wow. these restrictions and i picture the sorrow in in the people yes, yes. and then the quick turn yes. among many of them that would be like well okay what do we you know what do, what can we do next then and it's so gracious it's not it's not it's not trite it's right. it's something that that i don't just kind of like romantically like oh isn't that cute it's there's a depth to it that calls my own kind of sense of the presence of christ so as we finish here can you guys tell us some good news? How are people at Reality Ministries right now in the midst of this lockdown that we're in or something giving you hope like today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have another story. So many stories. Wonderful. <laughs> the best. So, so um, you mentioned at the beginning that we live in a neighborhood, an intentional community of people of all abilities um, living in a neighborhood together. And my neighbor is Amy, who lives with, Down, um, with Williams Syndrome. And um, Amy is um, extrovert beyond belief. She just she just thrives on being in relationship and being with people and hugging and talking and um, and so this obviously is really hard on her. And two weeks ago, maybe or two and a half weeks ago, at the very beginning of sort of the real social distancing and. Um, it was her half birthday. Birthdays <laughs> are really big in reality, and half birthdays are becoming big. And for Amy, no one cares more about their birthday or their half birthday than Amy. And so she was really worried that um, that it wasn't going to get acknowledged. And um, 
her dad just put word out um, to the on the listserv to the neighborhood, you know, that it was going to be her birthday. And so somebody else in the neighborhood, her half birthday, her half birthday. <laughs> out to the neighborhood said, let's um, gather on the street at noon, six feet apart, you know, and yeah. uh, wish Amy a happy half birthday. So we did. She was up on her porch, you know, as the queen, you know, oh, her, her subjects, really. And we sang happy birthday. And then Amy said, um, I, I just, I just need to be close to you guys. Um, and I can't hug you. Do you think I'll be able to hug you by the time I turn 100? <laughs> and um, it just really struck. That's too much. <laughs> me. Yeah. Me. That is so amazing. Uh, a friend said to him, yes, yes whether it's this side of the veil or the other, you know, when we're a hundred, we, we will, <laughs> we will be, um, hugging one another. And what it just, picture. it just speaks to me of, of, of this too shall pass and all shall be well. And that Thank is you. when I say our friends with disabilities, are our teachers and our guides, that's an example. And that's what gives us hope. Thank you so much. You know, as you say that, just to, to hear that story for it for itself is more than enough. But as you share it, I think of people who are suffering so much in this, in care facilities and, and such. And so I translate Amy's words to, do you think I'll be able to hug you when I'm 100? And how for yeah. some people, that 100 is not so far off and that they're longing for physical contact and wondering if they'll have it. So thank you so much. It's so grateful to share this time with you. We're going to put, if it's okay with you guys, I'm sure it is, we'll put in our episode notes um, a link, uh, Jeff, to to your books, but and particularly the Semmel book that we've spoken about. We'll put your podcast or your um, website there, if that's okay, jeffmcswain.org, correct? Yeah, thanks, Tom. And, um, and you can send us anything else you'd want there. Normally what we do, what we normally do on Rector's Cupboard is we have like a tasting element of the show and stuff where we uh, are in a local distillery or something. We couldn't do that this time. And then we give the guests like a nice bottle of such and such or whatever it is, or we sometimes are at a coffee shop or something else. We'll find a way to send you guys something from Vancouver. How's awesome. that? Oh, you're um, so this We're so grateful. Yeah. And come visit us in Durham. We yeah, have a full steam brewery right behind our house. Okay, well, we are coming. We'll come to Durham. We'll come. We'll bring, like, our little, like, Rector's Cupboard crew because I'm sure there's, like, we can talk to you guys again and yeah. then uh, talk to a couple other people locally. We would love to do that. that. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll make it when we're allowed to be on airplanes again. That's right. So, uh, you guys, thank you so much. What a blessing. And I really want to encourage anybody who's listening to pursue these these uh, um, works on sanctification and giving us these better pictures, it can be a lot to listen to at a time like this, to, or in a podcast like this, to hear some ideas that are being presented that might not um, be super like easy to grasp if you haven't been thinking along these lines. But I guarantee you, they are hopeful, and they are more fulsome ways of thinking about things like sanctification, and they are life-giving. So Jeff and Susan, thank you very much. We will uh, sign off for now. And, uh, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rector's Cup.